Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. In this episode, we talk with University of Waikato senior lecturer and researcher Holly Thorpe about her excellent book, Snowboarding Bodies in Theory and Practice. We discuss the use of theory to study physical practice, the rapid growth of the sport, gender relations, marketing, the snowboarding body, and writing about sports for different audiences. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Carl. Let's start with a question you're probably used to, and you probably get a lot in your research. Why snowboarding? That is a question I get often. And actually, the book's, um, the book's primarily about theory, um, which may surprise some people by the title, but I, I saw it as a bit of an adventure in social theorizing. And I was really exploring the potential of different social theories for helping to reveal some of the some of the complexities of contemporary physical culture. And I was trying to use various social theories to reveal some of the multi-dimensional aspects of the moving body. So I drew upon an array of different theories from compatible paradigms, so Marxist political economy, post-Fordism, Foucault, Bourdieu, uh, sociology of mobilities, um, feminism, and non-representational theory. And working with each of these theories, I, I learned that they each had strengths and limitations for revealing different aspects of uh, contemporary physical culture. And so the aim of the book actually was to, I was really trying to speak to, to graduate students really, uh, a lot of my graduate students here when they start on their own projects and then trying to work with theory and it's often they're on this desperate hunt for the perfect theory that best fits their data and I was trying to really help grad students move away from that idea and try to, um, try to think differently about how they use theory and to rather than just jumping on one theory and thinking that's going to offer all the answers or particularly jumping on the hottest theory right now, to, to think more broadly in terms of the, the various opportunities and potentials from various theories and that to realize that there's no perfect fit out there and to really think about how we're using social theory. Okay, so you see each one as revealing a different aspect of your particular case study, which was snowboarding. Yeah, and I was in a way, some of the chapters I was trying not to use the theories in the traditional way that they use. I was actually trying to push them further so I was really trying to work with the theories, trying to stretch and extend them, and how can they help us understand uh, different aspects of contemporary physical culture. But like you say, it was about snowboarding, um, and why snowboarding is a good question. So I, I saw snowboarding as a, as a great sort of case study for examining the complexities of contemporary physical culture. Um, it's, a, it's a sport and it's a recreational leisure activity that's undergone rapid growth and it's undergone some pretty um, extreme commercialization and institutionalization over the past uh, 30, 40 years, so a relatively short amount of time. There's also quite, um, not a lot of research in the area, okay. but, but also I had, um, I had a background in snowboarding. I'd been a competitive snowboarder and an instructor in the U.S., and uh, traveled quite a bit with snowboarding during my early 20s. So it offered a great case study in terms of um, my level of access to participants, to sources, some of the key themes. But obviously that sort of insider um, 
perspective has its strengths and limitations as well and I had to adopt a really reflexive approach throughout the project yeah and also my, my position in the culture was constantly changing but uh, definitely definitely helped could you could you say a bit more about your methods considering your theoretical interest in this very physical and embodied practice? I mean, how do you learn and write about something like that? Yeah, so the aim was to, to understand the complexities of global snowboarding culture and also understand the multiple forms of power that are operating on and through snowboarding bodies. And so I adopted a, a physical cultural studies inspired approach in terms of it's quite interdisciplinary and also um, multi-methodological and, and theoretical as well. So, I mean, I was drawing upon history, particularly the interdisciplinary area of um, politics of cultural memory, sociology and cultural studies, and there's psychological aspects that weave through many of the chapters as well. But to try to understand these complexities of global snowboarding culture, um, like I said, it was a multi-methodological approach, and actually it was a transnational ethnography that I conducted in six countries um, over seven years. So these countries were France, Canada, New Zealand, United States, Switzerland and Italy, and they included ethnographic visits to a variety of ski resorts in these locations. These uh, ethnographic visits range from from one week to one month, and when I was in these locations, I would go to or try to immerse myself in, in every possible snowboarding space. Yeah. So whether it was cafes, we get, our snowboarders were gathered, um, even at the supermarkets, the bars, on the mountains, and the, you know, all those types of places and seeing everything I could possibly see and absorbing as much as I possibly could. Um, I also conducted interviews with 60 snowboarders and I was trying to gather as many perspectives and experiences and voices from the, the snowboarding culture. So it wasn't just the athletes. It was very much trying to find the voices of the novices, the learners, um, so my participants range from from the learner, the very recreational weekend warrior, to Olympic snowboard judges, journalists, um, photographers, people who had committed or were committing a huge chunk of their lives to the sport and to the culture. Did you? I find... also engaged. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just. I was wondering. Did you find that people were more excited or willing to talk to you because you clearly had that background where you knew about snowboarding and? Yeah, I, I did. I did. Um, I did. It was, it was probably more subconscious to begin with, and then I became, as I became a more reflexive researcher through the process, I became very aware that wearing, you know, wearing the right jacket or um, the beanie or, or sharing some of my own personal lived experiences was important for helping them to open up and to develop that rapport. Yeah. Um, but there were also situations that were sort of the flip side of that when I was I was in a, um, I was actually in Whistler in Canada, and it, I hadn't expected it to snow. It was early in the season. I thought that was a great time to get get some good interviews because people weren't so busy. But actually, uh, it did snow, so I had to rent some equipment and get up onto the mountain. And I was sitting on the chairlift with some pretty pretty old gear. And um, yeah. you know, I was sitting on the chairlift, and people, some of the core snowboarders, would look at me and look at my gear instantly. And they were very quickly reading that I was an outsider. And I found that those conversations I couldn't get nearly as far with those types of conversations. So I was constantly aware of of my access. That yeah. was um, not always guaranteed. Yeah, that's it, it was changing. Yeah. But also I engaged in um, a media and document analysis throughout the project, so drawing upon magazines and films and websites. Um, that was really important. And so it was drawing upon these multiple methods and engaging them in dialogue with theory. So I was trying to weave the theory and the data throughout the book. 
Could you tell us a little bit more about the growth of snowboarding uh, and how the snowboarding community has changed, for instance, who used to participate, who still participates, uh, things like that for people who aren't as familiar? Yeah, so snowboarding is quite, quite an interesting sport in that it, um, in comparison to many traditional sports, which have been around for, for hundreds of years, snowboarding is quite a new sport. Um, it, although it's hard to date the exact, hist- uh, the date, the exact birth um, of snowboarding, um, but people have been standing on sleds and trying to slide in the snow for yeah. <laughs> hundreds of years. But it was the snurfer. So this is in 1964, a guy called uh, Sherman Poppin in the United States. He, he had some kids at home. They were, uh, they were bored in winter, and he went into the shed and um, had a couple of old skis that he, he bolted them together and added a rope on the front um, for s- some stability. And the kids had great fun with this. So he um, mass-produced it. This snurfer sold in supermarkets across America, North America, for about twenty bucks. Um, what, what was the name of the? Did you say snurfer? A snurfer. Huh. I, I feel like it would be hard to sell something with that name. <laughs> Actually, it was very much a children's toy. It was yeah. kind of like a hula hoop. Mm-hmm. It was cheap, and kids just took it out in the snow and had fun with it. So not at all the snowboard that we know today. But yeah. actually, interestingly enough, some of the early pioneers of snowboarding were passionate snurfers when they were kids. And so when they became teenagers, they were they were fascinated by this idea of sliding on the snow sideways, like mm-hmm. surfing, like skateboarding. And they were actually taking um, this snurfer idea and experimenting with it in their garages or so with new technologies and they'd hike up into the mountains or into the snow and they'd try and test out their new technology. So it was a very much a period of trial and error. Mm-hmm. And at this point, the, the, the equipment was pretty rudimentary and they, snowboarders weren't allowed on ski resorts. So it was um, quite a, a, a small activity at this point among a few core participants. But then during the late 1970s and 1980s, um, probably during the 1980s mostly, um, it, it started to, to grow in popularity, particularly when ski resorts finally allowed snowboarders onto the slopes. Um, and so grew and grew in popularity as, as uh, technologies became available, became cheaper, instructional programs developed. Um, and then during the mid and late 1990s, that's when we saw the activity undergo rapid institutionalization and commercialization mm-hmm. in terms of um, television and corporate sponsors. They really jumped on board with snowboarding. Um, avoid, sorry about the pun there. Um, yeah. <laughs> but they recognized the potential in extreme, so-called extreme sports. They called them extreme sports. The participants really didn't. Mm-hmm. But they recognized the potential in these extreme sports for targeting the young male consumer. So we saw the X Games develop in 1995. Snowboarding became an Olympic sport in 1998 in Nagano um, in Japan. And there was quite a lot of resistance from these early snowboarders who didn't like losing control of their sport. The early ethos of snowboarding in the in the 70s, 80s, was quite a countercultural, anti-establishment, do-it-yourself. Um, those sort of philosophies underpinned the sport. Yeah. And so when those snowboarders um, who had those philosophies, what they thought were core to the sport, suddenly these commercial sponsors are taking control of their sport. They resisted it quite strongly. But today, the majority of the participants accept that snowboarding is a as a commercial and a mainstream activity. So what we've got is quite a lot of change, and and you know from the 1970s to now. Yeah, very rapid change. Awesome. Yeah. So whereas the early participants were were young, they were mostly white males. 
there were some women, but they were in the minority and they were embracing, like I said, the countercultural, anti-authoritarian, do-it-yourself philosophies. They were drawing inspiration from skateboarding, surfing, punk. They wanted to be seen as different, distinct from more mainstream, traditional sports that which they um, had experienced and, and just didn't necessarily have a good experience with in terms yeah. of the, the authoritarian hierarchical structures in those sports. So they wanted snowboarding to be different. But today, snowboarding, the snowboarding population is considerably more diverse. Um, some estimates, and they're, um, it's difficult to come by uh, good statistics really in terms of numbers, but some estimates um, suggest around 70 million snowboarders worldwide, and they're ranging from, from four years old to 75 and, and up even. Yeah. So we've got increasing numbers of female participants and also an increasing number of uh, non-white participants. But you've got to remember the sport is still still quite expensive. Um, equipment, lift passes, access to mountains uh, tend to be for, for the privileged. Um, but in terms of the sport today, it's, it's highly fragmented. There's lots of different styles of participation. So we've got freestyle, we've got backcountry, we've got jibbing, we've got alpine. Participants come to the sport with different levels of commitment, um, skill levels, and in the past, whereas the divisions between skiers and snowboarders were quite um, quite strong, there were a lot of tensions there in the early days, mm-hmm. we're not seeing that so much anymore, particularly in North America or Australasia. Still some tensions in some places in Europe, but we're not seeing those divisions anymore. Rather, the divisions are between styles of participation. So a freestyle skier and a freestyle snowboarder would have more in common than a, an alpine snowboarder and an alpine skier. So interesting changes. Uh, as a brief aside to the listeners, there's way too much in this book for us to cover. So instead, I was hoping we could just focus in on a few sections. However, I, I really do recommend that the readers take the time to check out a copy of this book. As you mentioned, it includes a wide array of nuanced analysis on snowboarding, all approaching it from a variety of different theoretical angles. Um, and it presents theory in a very clear and enjoyable manner. Um, so does that sound good to you? That sounds fine with me, Carl. So first, could you talk a bit about the representation of women in snowboarding? And in particular, I was wondering how the snowboarders themselves embrace, contest, or guide those representations. Hmm. That's a good question. So as a female snowboarder myself, I've always been interested in the gender relations and snowboarding and other sports as well. Actually, when I first approached this study in my, uh, my early undergraduate days, I had this romantic idea that gender relations and snowboarding were better than any other sport I'd seen. Mm-hmm. I'd participated in lots of different sports in the past, and and I thought snowboarding was very unique um, in terms of more equitable gender relations. In a way, it is. Um, it developed, you know, in the 1970s when gender relations in the broader society were shifting in the Western world, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we saw women participating right from the very beginning of, with the sport, which is quite different to traditional sports, which were developed mostly by men for men. So women have been actually quite proactive in the sport and the industry and in in the culture. And so in that way, we're actually seeing some differences in how they're being represented in the media as well. Mm -hmm. So in Chapter 4, the title of this was Representing the Boarding Body, Discourse, Mm -hmm. Power, and the Snowboarding Media. So in this chapter, I adopted a Foucauldian analysis of the snowboarding media and how women are represented. Okay. And in this analysis, I saw that in terms of the mass media, female snowboarders are represented in very similar ways as, as female athletes are. So they were, when they often they didn't get a lot of coverage, um, tend mm-hmm. to focus on male snowboarders, but when they did get coverage in the mass media, 
they tended to be marginalized and trivialized. Okay. And the niche media, so this is, this is media that's produced specifically for snowboarders, um, often by snowboarders themselves, often they're the journalists, the photographers, the editors. Mm-hmm. Um, but not to say these, these are commercial um, uh, products. But in the niche media, particularly snowboarding magazines, female snowboarders are increasingly portrayed as respected athletes. Um, so they've got to get a lot more action shots, um, and they get respect for the demonstrations of physical prowess and commitment. Mm-hmm. And although they're getting less coverage than, than the male snowboarders, it, it is quite, there's uh, quite a lot of respectful coverage of female snowboarders as athletes. There are still images of, uh, of women as models, but the, the images there are quite distinct from female snowboarders who are, who are respected there. Okay. However, I was, I was actually quite interested in how, um, how some female snowboarders are increasingly posing in ways that emphasize their heterosexual femininity. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in the ways female and male readers and audiences are making sense of making meaning of these images. And this was so in the, was this in the niche, the more the, the niche magazines? The niche, okay. the niche, yeah. So I wanted to, because often we have this assumption that images that sexualize or emphasize the femininity of female athletes have a negative effect. And I actually wanted to, to um, it was more of an audience response. I wanted to know how female and male snowboarders are making sense of those images. Okay. And what I found is that some, some women and some men in the snowboarding culture are actually resisting those types of images. They don't really want those in the pages. They don't see that as authentic um, or true representations of what's happening on the slopes. Okay. However, others, um, and interestingly, women, were celebrating these images as evidence of, of female empowerment. Um, so I was also interested, too, in, in this development in, in uh, women's snowboarding films. Because although women were represented in the magazines, they were actually being excluded from the snowboarding films, which were a really big, important part of the culture. And so, so women were fed up with this, and they actually started producing their own, their own snowboarding films. And then these increasingly became very high quality and gained a lot of respect from the culture and the industry. So we're seeing women- So when you're talking about uh, snowboarding films, it's similar to skateboarding, where it's uh, collections of highlights and cool moves and tricks that were performed? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but they are really important for profiling these athletes, mm-hmm. um, and these films are, you know, watched globally. Um, many of them are produced in, in North America and Europe as well. But for the woman to be excluded from those was was really problematic for their careers in terms of sponsorship, mm-hmm. um, funding to travel, etc. So they wanted to to create um, space for themselves in the snowboard um, video side of the culture. And so they're actually adopting very proactive approaches in terms of um, creating these films, offering an alternative sort of representation of female snowboarders to the, what was happening in the male videos. And we're not, I, I'm, I think it's an interesting trend because we don't see female athletes and, and many other sports adopting such a proactive approach to yeah. seeing as a problem in the media and then actually trying to create their own media and change it. And this was happening in the, in the 1990s and quite interesting trends there. Do you have any uh, sense of why snowboarding might be unique or different than other the more traditional or dominant sports? Yeah, I think I think it does go back to the context in which the sport developed. So women were participating right from the very beginning, although they were you know less um, and, and fewer numbers than the men. They were right there. They have been involved in the production of of the equipment and the companies, um, journalists. 
they're in comparison to more traditional sports, which have been very male-dominated and been much harder for women to fight their way into those sports, women have been there throughout that, yeah. um, that journey, throughout that development. So we have seen it's a different context. Not to say there aren't still challenges, yeah. but it, it just definitely developed in a different context. So we're seeing different gender relations, which has quite interesting to study. In a later chapter, you focus specifically on the female boarding body. What does that focus teach us about gender and sex? Yeah, so the questions I was interested in exploring in Chapter 6, so the title of this chapter was Female Boarding Bodies, mm-hmm. Betty's Babes and Badasses. And so in this chapter, I was, asked, I was really keen to answer two key questions. One of those was, how do we make meaning of young women's experiences, of the opportunities and the constraints within sport and physical culture in the 21st century? And the second question was, how can we explain the various ways in which gender is practiced, embodied, reinforced, challenged, and negotiated in contemporary physical cultures such as snowboarding? Mm-hmm. So in this chapter, I drew upon the works of scholars such as Lois McNay, Lisa Adkins, and Beverly Skeggs, and that I was um, exploring the potential of a gendered re-reading of Bourdieu's original work, uh, the potential of this for extending theorizing of the gendered body in sport and physical culture. Mm-hmm. And so what, what I saw here, what became very, uh, very evident, is that female snowboarders are not a homogenous group. There's lots of different ways of being a female snowboarder, or rather a woman in snowboarding culture. Mm-hmm. Lots of different positions and politics in the field. So some women embrace their femininity and perform traditional gender roles, emphasizing fashion, or they're just there for the boys. Others reject traditional gender norms and embrace the opportunities to perform more traditional masculine traits, such as... Uh, aggression, risk-taking, physical dominance, riding through pain and injury, and they take pride in uh, being one of the boys. Mm-hmm. And they're negotiating space in quite um, fratriarchal groups. Other women are negotiating or experimenting with both femininity and masculinity and challenging ideas about what it means to be a female athlete. So as I said before, snowboarding is a sport with a different history um, in terms of gender relations. And it's also historically celebrated self-expression and individuality. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing is some women and some men have found space to play with these traditional ideas, these traditional notions of masculinity and femininity. And actually in Chapter 7, I do explore some of the multiple masculinities in snowboarding culture. But this chapter, uh, what I hope to, to reveal and what, I, what became clear to me was the potential and theoretical syntheses between feminism and Bourdieu. Mm-hmm. Um, really for reconceptualizing relationships between gender, power, structure, agency, reflexivity, culture, and embodiment. And so although we're seeing lots of um, positive progress in terms of the opportunities available for women in snowboarding, there are still ongoing constraints, and we're seeing different, different women negotiating those in different ways. Okay, so is that what you mean when in the chapter you make the claim that gender operates as a form of capital, but also guides the capital that one possesses? Yeah, so again, this is, um, this is drawing on my theor- theoretical synthesis between feminist theory and Bourdieu. So some women, like, yeah, like you say, um, some women are embracing their femininity as a form of capital in snowboarding culture. And particularly the athletes, some of them are using this for marketing purposes and for economic value. But in snowboarding culture, the most valued form of capital is symbolic capital. And this is gained from performances of physical prowess, uh, risk-taking and commitment. And traditionally, women have had less access to the most disvalued form of capital. So Bourdieu encourages us to think about not only 
what are the most valued forms of capital in different fields, but also who defines the rules and who allocates the particular types of, of valued capital. And in snowboarding culture, this is still, still young men. So what I saw is gender disparities in terms of that transferability of symbolic capital. Mm-hmm. So then this is when we see women, uh, some women, not all are adopting this approach, but some women who are drawing upon their gender capital to try to negotiate space uh, and the economic rewards in a highly competitive industry. Okay. So were there lots of cases where uh, certain women rose to fame and gained lots of uh, sponsors and marketing because they presented themselves in a sexualized manner rather than being uh, the most talented women out on the slope? Yeah, we, we did see some of that. That is still happening. However, symbolic capital still is the most valued form. So mm-hmm. if those women are not demonstrating real physical prowess and commitment to the sport, they will, although the, the advert, advertisers, um, commercial sponsors, particularly those from outside the, the culture, they may um, latch onto those women and use them for marketing purposes. Within the core of the culture, core participants, they, they tend to see through those images and they really are looking for demonstrations of physical prowess and skill. That is, that's number one. And okay. if she's a beautiful, beautiful woman, that helps. But if she can combine symbolic capital with gender capital, those are the ones that are really um, making the most money in the sport. I was wondering if we could spend a little bit of time talking about this idea of reflexivity that you bring up in the chapter. Hmm. It, it seems like with academics, we don't like to attribute reflexivity or you know the, the ability to reflect and, and think about what's going on uh, to people or, or athletes. But in your research, it seems like you're finding something a little bit different when you're looking at gender. Yeah, so again, I was drawing upon Bourdieu, and his work's been critiqued for his determinism and not offering much room for individual agency or the potential for change. Um, But again, I was engaging with feminist analyses of some of his his later work, and I was exploring the notion of field crossing, and so how movement across different fields, uh, fields with different gender norms and value systems, can prompt some women to, to question gender, gendered aspects of their habitus or sort of gendered expectations within different fields. So I considered women's movements across fields such as work, family, education, uh, more traditional sports or sports like snowboarding. And for some women, the movement across these fields prompted them to rethink gender expectations, um, which in some cases led women to try to create change either in their own lives or in the broader snowboarding culture. Okay, so by moving between fields uh, where there's different rules for uh, how the women are supposed to act, it, it kind of forced them or gave the opportunity to reflect upon what's going on? Yeah, with, with some women it did. Okay, that's fascinating. Um, so if you don't mind, I'd, take, I'd like to take a little bit of a jump to one of the final arguments you make in the book. In the concluding chapter, you use the Protect Our Winters campaign as a case study to discuss an affect and hope-based form of politics. Um, So what I was wondering is, what's different about affect-based politics, and what do we learn from this particular case? Yeah, sure. So uh, in the first part of Chapter 10, I drew upon two different theoretical approaches. One of these was non-representational theory, and the other was third-wave feminism, to reveal some of the creative and embodied approaches employed by contemporary youth to produce new forms of passionate and effective politics in local and global contexts. And I was drawing upon Nigel Thrift's non-representational theory, and particularly his concepts of politics of affect and politics of hope. 
And I was particularly interested in how youth are drawing upon an array of new technologies like Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, blogs, Instagram, uh, to produce political demonstrations quickly uh, with very little infrastructure and often from a distance. And so it's important to, uh, it's amazing how much, how fast time flies, but yeah. important to note that I wrote this in 2010. This was, this was before the Arab Spring Uprising, and since then there's been a lot more research on youth and new technologies and, and their relationships to yeah. um, how they're being used in, in politics. But um, I was building upon a, a significant body of research um, in sport that explores politics and social movements, ranging from race and ethnicity to sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I was essentially arguing that we can no longer rely on traditional conceptions and conventional indicators of what constitutes politics. Otherwise, I think we uh, we risk being blind to some of the highly nuanced and variegated forms of political agency that are being expressed by contemporary youth. Mm-hmm. So drawing upon Thrift's discussion of affective technologies and new forms of counterpolitics, I examined the growth of action sport-related social movements, focusing in this chapter on the environmental example of Protect Our Winters, and elsewhere, actually, I've examined with a colleague, uh, uh, Robert Reinhardt, some of the affective technologies used in health and educational action sport um, okay. social movement organizations such as SurfAid International and Skaterstan. But in this chapter, I was looking at, like, like you mentioned, at uh, Protect Our Winters, which is a non-profit organization established in 2007. It's dedicated to educating and activating snow sport participants on issues related to global warming. And this organization was was set up by a group of snowboarders and passionate skiers and those working in the snow sport industry. And so I conducted a discursive analysis of various media, so films, websites, documentaries, blogs mm-hmm. that were produced by Protect Our Winters staff and how they are taking affect into their workings in an attempt not only to inform but also to evoke a political response from those in the snow industry and culture. So some of the common affective discourses that I identified included fear, remorse, guilt, cultural debt, hope, and individual and community responsibility. And of course, the readers and consumers of these different um, different forms of media could have uh, their affective responses to these discourses can never be guaranteed. But what I was seeing in Protect Our Winters and other action sport um, social movements is that... that um, this is not a haphazard process. Uh, rather, affect is being increasingly choreographed and strategically engineered by an array of affective technologies, so film, photo, uh, music, which are then repeated and recycled throughout the this global snow sport industry. This is what Thrift termed affective contagion, so how affect spreads and multiplies. And so uh, Protect Our Winters, for me, was just one example of the various new kinds of practical affective politics currently being being mobilized in the early 21st century. And so what I was really trying to say was that maybe we can draw upon Thrift's approach or similar approaches that can um, prompt us to rethink how we're approaching what is, you know, what is politics, what is political action, sport and physical cultures today. And what I what I'm seeing uh, and still seeing as youth are are redefining politics in, in quite interesting ways and using affective technologies yeah. in, in, in really interesting ways. So was the Protect Our Winters campaign particularly successful at drawing in or mobilizing youth in comparison to more uh, traditional form of politics? 
Yeah, it's it's still a small scale um, sort of project, but it is um, it is snowboarders, skiers, people in the industry who are rallying around this issue issue, and they're really trying to to speak to governments, to, to speak to decision makers, to to create to create some changes in terms of um, environmental awareness about global warming, and they are obviously coming at it from a perspective where that's going to have major effects on their careers, um, mm-hmm. on the industry. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, they, they have been quite successful in, in, uh, in their strategies. Okay. So would it be fair that, uh, to say that youth or people are drawn in through this affect-based form of politics, and then there's a shift uh, when, to more traditional forms of politics when it moves towards uh, making actual policy decisions? Yeah, I'm not sure if it is switching to a more traditional form of politics. Um, my focus really was on the the use of the new media okay, and actually what happens when they get to talking to government. Yeah. Um, but what is interesting is, and I guess I don't want to uh, over-romanticize it, it's an interesting trend, but these affective technologies, it's hard to know how they are being uh, or how they are really affecting consumers. I can see how they're being choreographed and strategically used by yeah. people involved in these organisations, but how you know how significant really is somebody liking a, a Facebook a, a, a video on a Facebook page, yeah. um, or or sending it on or linking it on, or you know, so the the terms of the response can go yeah. from from apathy to maybe liking it on a Facebook page or maybe buying a T-shirt or trying, you know, consumption in terms of supporting that organization to actually starting to, you know, to feel really passionate about it and trying to get involved in the cause. And this is, you know, we're looking at Protect Our Winters as, as this one example, but we can look at lots of different other organizations where it's there needs to be more research in terms of how these affective technologies are being, being read, being used there um, in terms of, actually reaching people. Uh, To conclude, I was wondering if we could talk a bit about writing on this subject. One of the things that really impressed me is that you've made an effort to write for more popular and less academic outlets, so not just peer-reviewed journals. For example, you've written a number of essays for Curl, an Australian sport lifestyle magazine for women, and then I also saw that you uh, co-founded a website aimed at empowering athletic girls and women. So what has that experience been like, and what have you learned from talking about sport and theory, especially since you're so, so theory-driven, when writing in different forums and for different audiences? Yeah, it's, it's a, a very challenging but uh, very rewarding process. During my PhD, I wrote for Curl um, throughout, the, throughout the journey and have done so ever since. And I, I really do enjoy trying to share my ideas, my thinking, with those that I'm, that I'm writing about. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you need to keep in mind your audience uh, when, you, when you're doing that sort of writing. So when I was writing for Curl, I was thinking about writing for a core audience of 14 to 20-year-old young women in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and so obviously took that into consideration. But it didn't mean I, I dumbed it down completely. I mean, it was the same ideas that I was working with in terms of engaging with Foucault or engaging with Bourdieu, mm-hmm. those same types of questions. But I would strip it off Foucault or Bourdieu, but I was still trying to prompt those same um, those same questions and, and encourage critical thinking yeah. among the readership. So I wasn't providing them answers, but I was trying to raise questions. And... Um, and I do like trying to do this in lots of different contexts, so not just with my undergraduate or my graduate students, but trying to to prompt critical questioning among diverse audiences. 
Um, and I guess this is my my way of practicing my politics in my everyday life. Um, or I guess trying to be a public intellectual for for youth culture. Yeah. So trying to speak in their language. Um, you know, taking what I know and I've developed my knowledge of the, of these cultures, and trying not to. Um, to speak to speak over them, but to make these arguments, to make the critical thinking accessible. Mm-hmm. Did you have difficulty when you first started writing for uh, some place like Curl and, and not citing Bourdieu or Foucault, <laughs> or not having <laughs> not having five footnotes? <laughs> yeah. It was particularly difficult when I was early on in the PhD, and I was really um, you know very very deep in the, the theoretical um, world, and it was very hard for me to not just write for curl, but to speak to anybody that was in my, you know, non-theoretical um, framework. So that was a very, very good challenge because in situations, you know, where you're speaking on the radio or for a television interview or, you know, there's different audiences and um, we get very comfortable speaking to our academic peers, but um, it's important to take those ideas and, and try to share them more broadly. And I, I teach a, at my university a, a first-year paper that's an introduction to socio-cultural ways of um, thinking about sport and leisure, and that's a really always a good reminder of you know how to get um, to make these ideas accessible and interesting, and to encourage critical thinking. These students have come you know straight off the beach, a lot of them from school summer holidays, and they're a bit confused and um, disillusioned and not sure what's going on at university. So trying to encourage that critical thinking and inspire and and um, get those sparks going is, is a great challenge. So, yeah, always I'm always looking for new audiences and I'm trying to challenge myself in that sense. Uh, this might be a difficult question, but I'm wondering if you think there's something particularly uh, either special or difficult about writing about sport and leisure in this manner and really challenging people to think about it in a way they normally do not or might not even want to. Absolutely. Um, it is, I think one of the more difficult areas to encourage critical thinking about because for many people, sport and politics do not mix or should not mix. Um, They have, um, particularly for our students, um, have had, they're there because they love sport. They deeply feel passionate about sport is is good um, for them. It's good for society. Those are Mm -hmm. the dominant messages they've received. So trying to, to encourage them to think critically about that is, um, or to challenge those um, those assumptions is, is quite difficult. And you do need to tread carefully because you don't want to necessarily evoke that knee-jerk reaction. You want to sort of take them on a journey that helps them get to that point of realising for themselves that there's other ways of thinking about that, that are these experiences that can be more complex and nuanced. Um, sometimes it helps to to give examples from from away, from international contexts, and then come home to things mm-hmm. that are closer. And I've actually seen um, some of my colleagues in, in this country, in New Zealand, um, who have critiqued uh, the relationship between masculinity and rugby and, mm-hmm. and have had quite powerful negative responses from the general public to that. So I'm trying to learn you know, important lessons there in terms of how to how to raise these critical questions in ways that don't necessarily evoke the knee-jerk reaction but can help encourage critical thinking. Um, But yes, I think sport is a very difficult area to do that because people feel passionately about it and don't really want to critically unpack it. Well, 
Thank you again for joining us. I really enjoyed the conversation. And I'd like to remind the listeners, once again, you really should check out the book. It is definitely one of the uh, most enjoyable presentations of theory that I've seen. Thanks so much, Carl. Thanks for the opportunity. It's a great website. Thank you.